I remember Jim Ballard saying, Catherine, I, I said, Jim, I don't know. I don't know how to be a lobbyist. And he's like, time to learn. Welcome to episode 412 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Another installment of our series focused on North Carolina, sponsored by NC Broadband Matters. This is Jess Delfiaco, Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher is joined by Catherine Rice, Project Manager for the Coalition for Local Internet Choice and co-founder of NC Broadband Matters. He's also joined by Jack Kozort, a government relations consultant who is involved with broadband in the North Carolina State Legislature. This is part one of a conversation about the history of North Carolina's HB 129, the law that preempted local telecommunications authority in the state. Chris, Jack, and Catherine begin by discussing what the economic situation was in Wilson, North Carolina, in the years prior to the adoption of HB 129. In particular, how local leaders were working to take the community into the future with infrastructure investments. After attempting to work with the large incumbent providers, the city decided to invest in a broadband network on their own. They then faced pushback from Time Warner Cable, which wanted to put an end to Wilson's network and prevent other communities from having the ability to develop their own networks. Jack and Catherine described the experience of being involved in the process as lobbyists and large corporate entities pushed misinformation in order to pass legislation to prevent competition. Don't miss the second part of this conversation, which comes out on Thursday. Now here's Christopher talking with Catherine Rice and Jack Kozort. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, producing another in our special series of podcasts brought to you by NC Broadband Matters, uh, the organization that is really focused on trying to bring really high quality broadband to all of North Carolina, uh, including a, a choice of it where we can. And this is a, a discussion that's really going to hit at the heart of one of the things that's happened over the past about 10 years ago that really led to it being more difficult to expand broadband across North Carolina. Um, a particular bill that's known still by its, uh, its um, name as it was going through the legislature, HB 129. And to discuss it, I have Catherine Rice, who is the project manager for the Coalition for Local Internet Choice and a co-founder of NC Broadband Matters. Catherine, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. You were one of our very first guests when this series started, I think about eight years ago. Um, and it's it's just great that you're still working in this field and, and we get to share a microphone again. Wonderful. Uh, I don't, I barely remember that, Chris. It seems very long time ago. <laughs> We also have Jack Kozort, a government relations consultant who has multiple clients, but has been very involved in broadband at the legislature. Uh, welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. I'm excited to, to dig into this because I feel like for a lot of years, even, we, we kind of tried to maybe tone down just how horrible the process of HB 129 was because we didn't want to alienate some of the people who were involved. We we kind of hoped that eventually they would see the light of just how damaging that bill was for rural North Carolina. And um, I don't know, at some point we got tired of not being entirely honest with just how corrupt that process was. And we want to talk about it now, right? Is that is that pretty fair description? Fair enough. Absolutely. So let me start, Jack. Let me ask you, do you want to describe how you were involved with this? And, and in particular, um, what Wilson's motivations were then for why they decided to build a fiber network? Sure, Chris. To do that, I need to give you a little history, a little background on Wilson. For years and years, Wilson was the single largest tobacco market in the world, not just in North Carolina, but in the world. It was a community that was built on growing and selling tobacco. Yeah, really big warehouses. The warehouse in Wilson was the biggest. 
And that market was the biggest every year. The leaders in Wilson, uh, both the elected leaders and the professional staff for the city, realized, oh, some 20 or more years ago, that that was not going to last, that the tobacco economy was going to go bust in North Carolina, and that a community like Wilson, which relied so much on tobacco, needed to look to other ways to do things. So they began a process of building up their entire infrastructure. They uh, borrowed money and built a water impoundment. And so they have one of the largest water supplies in Eastern North Carolina. During droughts over the last 15 years, they are frequently a seller of water to other communities that uh, don't have enough water. They also use their money to build up their road infrastructure uh, to have better access to highways. Uh, Interstate highway goes right by Wilson. And they decided to, to try to compete with larger cities in recruiting cleaner and better economic development. Uh, they went after pharmaceutical companies, for example. Uh, there is a tire manufacturing plant in Wilson. So as their economy changed from a tobacco agrarian economy to a more modern market, they saw the need to have better access to high-speed internet to serve those new businesses that they were recruiting. Also, there were a couple existing entities that needed better service. One was Barton College, a nice university right there in Wilson. And another was the BB&T Processing Center. BB&T, which is now merged with SunTrust, large bank in North Carolina, had its roots in Wilson. And 2,200 employees still worked in Wilson at their processing data processing center. But in order for them to be able to communicate with the home office in Winston-Salem and other places, they also needed better high-speed internet. So Wilson began trying to, to bring that in as a part of their developing better infrastructure. And the first thing they did was go to Time Warner Cable, which was their primary server at the time, to ask them, can you upgrade uh, our existing service? We need more high-speed internet, or we're gonna lose these entities we have and we're not going to be able to recruit the kind of things we need to do to keep this a viable growing city. Time Warner basically said no. So Wilson came back with another offer. Well, suppose we pay for it, we build it, and then you run it. And Time Warner said no. And Wilson said, well, let's do a joint partnership. Let's build it together. And Time Warner said, we don't do that. We don't partner with anybody. And so Wilson was stuck. They also, I remember clearly they were working, trying to work with Embark, the telephone company that later became CenturyLink as well. And, um, and, and Embark actually entertained it for a little while, but then ultimately decided not to move forward with a partnership. That's true. And they were pretty deep into the discussions with Embark. Mm -hmm. And that looked promising, but it just didn't work out. And, and from what I have, have learned and read since then, there are very few places that the bigger companies like that have ever done these kind of partnerships. That's right. It's usually the smaller internet service providers who are willing to go in and, and do that kind of partnership with the local government entity. So when Wilson found itself in that position, uh, they didn't just jump into this. They spent a lot of time, hired a lot of consultants to try to find out, is this feasible? How much will it cost? Will it be worth it? 
this was not an overnight decision. They, they spent years working on this, seeing how much it would cost. One thing that was helpful to Wilson was uh, Wilson is an electricity in the growth of providing power around the state. In smaller communities like Wilson, it was not economically advantageous for the major power companies to run power to the city. So all across North Carolina, you have cities who built their own electrical power infrastructure. They would buy electricity wholesale from a provider like Duke Energy and then resell it to its own citizens. So Wilson was an electric city. So they had an infrastructure in place. Not just that, but the thing that amazes me is that it's actually about 140 years old now. It's it's one of the original ones. There weren't many before they formed theirs. I mean, there's a deep history in Wilson of making long-term smart investments. There really is. And that's one of the reasons I like working for them, that it's one of my favorite clients is we're dealing with people who have had that kind of foresight uh, for a long, long time and, and have always done things uh, to try to make it a better place to live for their citizens, a better place to work, a better economic community. So when Wilson had this infrastructure in place, they made the decision to go forward and borrow the money in order to build uh, what they named Greenlight, their broadband network. They borrowed around $36 million to do it. Um, A lot of money for a town like Wilson. Uh, Interestingly enough, though, that was about the same salary that the chief executive of Time Warner was making <laughs> per year. They were almost equivalent, <laughs> uh, but it was still a huge investment. Well, I, I think it's always worth pointing out, too, that there's there's two interesting things that, that deal with them borrowing the money. And one is that um, it's it's been alleged um, effectively in the legislature and elsewhere that they were using taxpayer dollars for it. And they weren't. They they got the money from private investors. The second piece of it is, is that the main private investor was BB&T, the local business that loved the yes. idea so much and, and recognized how important it was. They bought into it. I mean, this is like you said, this wasn't something that Wilson just sprung up. This was something that was broadly supported in the community. It wasn't something that was out of nowhere for BB&T. They, they told me a story of having a single fiber going from their processing offices in Wilson to Rocky Mount. And one day that fiber was cut uh, and business went down and never again. They were looking for all kinds of alternatives so that they could um, run their business in a reliable way. Mm-hmm. Well, BB&T has been a great supporter uh, through the entire process. and and still supports Wilson and supports Greenlight uh, in this project. So Wilson decides to move forward and build Greenlight. And immediately there were obstacles thrown uh, in their path. And this is about 2006, if I remember correctly, 2005, 2006. 2006. And Time Warner in particular, knowing what Wilson was trying to do and and considering that Wilson was going to be a competitor of theirs, in providing service, not only in the city of Wilson, but outside the city. One of the things Wilson did uh, through its development of its provision of electricity was to go outside the city limits and to go to the smaller communities uh, throughout Wilson County and even across county lines uh, into other counties, uh, Pine Tops, for example, in Edgecombe County, got its power, still gets its power 
from mm-hmm. the city of Wilson. So Time Warner started throwing up every obstacle in Wilson's path that they could from appearing at all the public hearings and, and uh, talking about what a financial disaster it was going to be and what a fiasco Wilson was getting into. And then eventually going to the General Assembly and having legislation written and introduced that would stop Wilson from doing what it was doing. And that's when I became involved. Um, Wilson needed someone to help them in the General Assembly to make sure they were able to complete and operate Greenlight. And so they hired me as their government relations consultant to work for them. This was a pretty new topic that everybody was dealing with. The League of Municipalities did not have uh, much background on this. And so we were pretty much on our own in Wilson in dealing with this. There were a couple of other places around the state which had some internet service providers. Salisbury comes to mind. Mooresville, uh, the town of Morganton had its own service. So there were a few others who were similarly situated, but none were about to do what Wilson was trying to do. Right. I think actually Salisbury did come later. It was inspired by Wilson, I think. They actually were twins. Yes. Mike, Mike and Mike were talking to each other the whole time. One of the things that's interesting is, is how Wilson and others received the authority to do Internet service. North Carolina is a state where local government can do only what the legislature allows it to do. It has no inherent authority of its own. So everything that a city or a town or a county wants to do has to have some statutory authority for doing it. And so there's general statutes covering all of North Carolina that set forth the things that cities, towns, and counties can do. It never specifically talked about broadband or internet because when the statute was written, those things didn't exist. But what the courts held in a case that went up to the North Carolina Court of Appeals was that providing this kind of service was inherent in a local government's authority to protect the health and welfare of its citizens and to make sure it could do the other things that were authorized. And so it it was that Court of Appeals decision that allowed Wilson to move forward and allowed other local government entities to move forward. And so it, it was that Court of Appeals decision that the major cable companies were trying to overturn, put something in a statute to say, you can't do this. Ironically, they they named it the level playing field. Far from it. When I first, I think, became aware of, of Catherine Rice, um, that was a presentation that you gave uh, in Wilson in which you were discussing uh, the pricing and how it was different from Time Warner Cable in Wilson than in the, all of the surrounding areas, including Raleigh. And um, I realize it's actually later than you want to start. So um, why don't you tell us what happened before then, what you were doing, Catherine, and then walk us up to that presentation, which I still think I have a video of somewhere. Yes, there's so much history here, Chris. And I think that was one of the reasons that uh, Jack and I really wanted to do this podcast, because uh, there'll be people out there who just weren't around at this time. And and there are people who won't remember. I actually had to look into my notes to see. Um, but I, I started in North Carolina um, in this area around 2002. Um, one of the first uh, communities that I visited was Wilson. 
Um, and I'll never forget it. Uh, the, the city council was really tired of having to approve rate increases for Time Warner Cable. And that's because at the time, uh, they had federal authority to regulate cable rates. All their authority really had been, the rules had been very much watered down and they really didn't have any choice but to in, allow the rates to be increased. And, and they said to my boss, uh, is there nothing we can do? We really need competition. And my boss said, uh, well, yes, there is something you can do. And, and they said, what? And he said, you can be the competition. <laughs> And he said, in fact, uh, there's a new technology that's just become just about as affordable as the existing technology. It's called fiber to the home. And I happen to have an expert here behind me and I'm looking around. <laughs> um, and so they said, all right, let's do a study. And uh, that was uh, I think that was as far back, Jack, as like 2003. Exactly. But what I was when I was looking back at my notes, I I was stunned that I didn't remember that there was actually a time in North Carolina's history where local governments had a lot more control and oversight over the cable television industry. And I think people forget this because the cable industry has been so good at removing that uh, story from their history line. Uh, Chris, if it's okay with you, I just want to mention a few things about that. The 2005 franchising fight. Yes. Um, in 2005, local governments still had local cable franchising authority. Um, and they had this because there was a federal law passed in 1984 called the Cable Communications Policy Act of 1984, which basically uh, it was based on the premise that uh, because the cable companies were coming into local communities and using public land, public rights of way, the local communities had the right to, to go into contracts with these companies and ask for things in return. And one of the things they'd ask for are, are public education and government channels. They would ask for free drops for their fire departments and their police departments um, or, and institutional networks for their schools. But they also had something called density requirements. And what this meant was that if the cable system passed, say, between 20 or 30 households per mile, they had to serve those homes. This was significant um, because you had more rural areas with 20 miles per home that actually had a legal leverage to make these companies provide service. And as Jack pointed out, North Carolina understood where the global economy was going. They lost their textile and their manufacturing uh, overseas. They knew information was important. So they knew this was basically the tool they had to get that pipe that had both video and internet to people's homes. Fascinating uh, result of the growth of the cable industry and the development of monopoly markets in local communities, prices started going up uh, and customer service started going down. And there was a lot of public outcry about it to both local officials and to state elected officials. And the cable industry knew it. So in 2006, they preempted it. And they went to, Jack remembers this, um, AT&T and Time Warner, hand in hand, were visiting legislators and saying, look, uh, we get it. Uh, this market needs to be competitive. And if you'll just get rid of these local governments, uh, get rid of those regulations <laughs> that are creating all these barriers for us to compete, which of course they weren't. You couldn't make a company come serve your community. And in fact, there were gentlemen's agreements uh, that where they agreed not to compete with each other in local communities. Um, 
if you'll just get rid of those snarky local government regulations, we will compete like no tomorrow. The free market will have open reign. You'll see prices go down. You'll see customer service get improved. Just let us out of these local contracts. Right. It's this amazing point at which you really have to wonder if someone is, if AT&T is coming to you and saying, you know what we really want? We desperately want a lot of competition. You have to, you have to wonder why are they saying this? Because frankly, that that may well be actually a crime against the fiduciary responsibility they have to their shareholders. Because if there was a ton of competition, AT and T would have a lot fewer customers, even if they did a good job. Um, but but there's also, a lot of Kool Aid going around that year. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is one of the challenges. Is, is as you well know, there's not a lot of people representing the user in 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 any state house when it comes to telecom on energy issues. There's often groups, and they're over, they're overpowered. You know yes, they're not at all dynamic. equal, yeah. but there's at least groups in the on the in the energy side. There's not groups on the telecom side really that are working in the state houses. Well, and as Jack said, uh, it was a it was a brand new technology. Um, I mean, Grant Goings, the city manager in Wilson, he would take these big posters into the hearings hmm. and he would try to demonstrate with these icons what we were talking about, that the, the telephone technology was was created in the 1950s and, and he showed this super old telephone and then he tried to explain what fiber to the home was. And I, I don't even remember what icon <laughs> he used, but he, he had some sophisticated piece of equipment that was showing. He said, the times have changed and we need modern technology to serve North Carolina. Well, Grant's a big guy. So if the posters look big next to him, they must have been big posters. <laughs> <laughs> I but- mean, one time they even uh, prohibited us from using PowerPoints in the hearings because <laughs> they didn't want the images. So I want to I want to speed ahead a little bit, but I want to make one other point because it's good to bring up that it's a good precedent for how the cable and telephone companies have been so strong in the legislatures. Many states got rid of local franchising. Um, I live in one that actually did not. And we've looked across the United States and the amount of competition hasn't really changed that much in states that got rid of it. The, the level of competition is generally set by factors that are unrelated to whether the local government has any power. Um, you know, it's a lot of other factors that are involved. So we saw um, AT&T in Tennessee promised like $400 million of investment, I think, or something like that. Um, they made all these promises they never intended to keep and legislators bought it. And then what's really frustrating is that when those same lobbyists came back to them later, they were ready to buy more from them, even though they had been, you know, just totally lied to previously. And that's what we saw. Um, they, they, they were successful in 2006, passing the Video Service Competition Act, uh, which in essence was full deregulation. Uh, they preempted local state franchising authority. We, have, we now have uh, the state as the franchising authority, which is important to remember. They have authority under that to re-regulate this industry and they're not, go- they're not using it. I think it was like a two-page franchise in the end. So here you have in 2006, completely deregulated market, right? Um, you, you see that the cable industry has grown uh, and, monop- and, and through buyouts has become, has created mo- monopoly markets. Um, and then you have, but you have the same situation for local communities. They no longer have the tool of the local cable franchise to require these guys to bring the pipe to their residents and businesses. So they have the same problem and they they turn to themselves and say, well, I guess if the cable industry isn't going to serve our residents and our businesses, we're going to have to. 
So what was the, the response to that in 2007? Jack starts talking about it. The, the first remnants of really H129 uh, showed their ugly head in 2007 um, with the Local Government Fair Competition Act. And the arguments that were used uh, continued to be used every year after that. The, the cable industry argued that this was the public sector competing with the private sector, as if Time Warner Cable and AT&T and CenturyLink were the only public private sector out there. They argued that these systems would be failing left and right, and they had to be, these communities needed to be stopped from failing, uh, which is kind of a joke since if you're the competition, why are you complaining about your competitor failing? They talked about it being an abuse of taxpayer money uh, when they knew that these systems were not being funded with taxpayer money. They were being funded with, as you noted, Chris, um, things like certificates of participation where the system itself is the collateral. Um, in fact, this all underscored the fact that community systems were not failing. They were successful. And that's what you were talking about, Chris, is the presentation that I did um, actually was a couple of years later that uh, what we did is we were tracking cable rates and, and Time Warner Cable had one, it had two head ends that were serving the whole state. And I honestly think that's why they were afraid of community broadband because you did have Wilson and Salisbury implementing fiber to the home and they could interconnect. Time Warner had two head ends and they, so they were using the same head end providing the same programming to the research triangle area, Cary and Raleigh and Durham, Chapel Hill, um, as they were providing to Wilson. But what we saw was that in Wilson, they did not raise the rates. They sent the city manager the same letter they sent the city manager and all those other communities, um, but it was zero on, on what we're planning to increase the rates. But in the rest of the communities, they raised the rates between 20 and 40%. Do I remember correctly that they actually used whiteout? Like it wasn't it. They, they yeah. actually it was <laughs> just it was silly. And so we put those up in the in one of Faison's hearings with on the PowerPoint and showed the same language and then highlighted for Wilson it was zero. So this is the the most stark evidence that we had that cable uh, communities their own that on their own cable systems were the competition to the cable industry and they knew it. Right. That's why for the next four years, they did everything they could to stop uh, communities like Wilson. I do, I do want to note, I mean, I, I feel like our argument is is um, that local governments should be able to do this. And and um, um, I mean, that's that's obviously our argument. But what I'm getting at is that the issue about taxpayer dollars, I think, is a bit of a red herring. It is true that that Wilson has not used any taxpayer dollars. Um, now Salisbury has, um, and they issued um, general obligation debt, which is backed by the taxpayers. Um, and and I don't feel like we should delegitimize that approach. I think communities should be able to choose for themselves how they make sure that this essential service is available. I think people agree with us. And so I think it's important to note while the other side was lying, there have been some cases in which public dollars have gone into some systems. And I've always felt that should be a local choice. I respect communities, um, you know, like, for instance, um, in Lafayette, Louisiana, the, the community themselves doesn't want to put taxpayer dollars into it. That's a red line for them. And I respect that. But if for communities that say, no, we desperately need this service, and we're going to get it however we can. I also respect that. Yes, and I think that that's actually the premise of the Coalition for Local Internet Choice is this decision, the authority to make these decisions for communities about their economic future 
for instance, their broadband future, as we're seeing now with the pandemic, they need to have the authority to be able to make those decisions themselves. If the community is willing to risk, take on the risk, they should be allowed to do that. But mm-hmm. it's their decision. So, Jack, what happens after after 2006? Um, I, I, I recall that, that Catherine was busy every year making sure that um, at this point, a democratically controlled uh, legislature, the Democratic Party is is in charge of the legislature, had been for 100 years, I think, um, something like that. It was a, a very long run. And um, in every year, there was a, a fight. Um, but it was one that um, I, I think of, I don't want to disregard your contributions. At the time, I always thought of it as Catherine winning. <laughs> So, so do I. <laughs> so the situation is, after 2006, uh, it's a wide open marketplace. And the big companies are supposed to be competing with each other. And in reality, they were not. Wilson had wanted to do something with Time Warner. Time Warner had told them no with everything Wilson had proposed. So they said, we're going to build our own. And Time Warner, AT&T, and the Cable Association said, over our dead bodies, we're going to do everything we can to stop you. So in 2007, there was legislation that would have stopped Wilson from doing what they were doing in building Greenlight and stopping other communities from moving ahead. That's when I was hired by Wilson. I got a call from Grant Goins one morning, didn't know him, uh, but he called and, and he explained briefly what the situation was and says, we've got a bill in committee that would ruin what we're trying to do and we need help. And remind me who Grant was at this time. He was the city manager, still is the city manager in, in Wilson, uh, originally from Elkin, North Carolina, and he uh, had served several cities working his way up to larger and larger communities, found a home in Wilson, loved it. They loved him. He's a, I think he's visionary in terms of the way he looks at what local government should do for its citizens and its businesses. He, He just is really thoughtful, studious, does his homework, does his research, has great councils to work with. The elected officials in Wilson have just been terrific. Uh, in in this area. But uh, so Grant calls me and explains what's going on. And and so I go to my first committee meeting. And to to my surprise, the the bills are being written by the cable industry. So when we go into a committee meeting, the proposed committee substitutes are delivered by the lobbyist for the cable industry and handed out to the members of the committee. And, and of course, uh, that's a revelation to me. I've been working in the General Assembly since 1971. My, my first year there was in, as an intern when I was at, at NC State. And I had never seen anything like that before. That's just not the way things are done. The General Assembly has a staff. They write the legislation. The staff people hand out things but not in this situation. Uh, and, I, and actually, I remember in 2010, Senator David Hoyle, in his last year, candidly admitted that Time Warner Cable had written the bill that he oh, had absolutely. championed to stop competition. Yes, yes. And, and so through all of those years, that was what we were dealing with. The things that were said during those committee meetings by the, the cable industry, uh, by AT&T, by Time Warner, and by the 
the, the cable association were just outrageous. Um, we were accused of being communist. Right, literally. You're, you're not oh, saying absolutely. that they hinted at it. They literally used the yes. word communist. Way hard, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's, he is retired now, thank goodness. They made outlandish claims about the mayor of Wilson, Bruce Rose, somehow benefiting from this and having a luxury car that he drove around as a result of Wilson having green light. And so, of course, we had to have him at the next meeting and bring a picture of his four-door Buick, which was <laughs> what, what he drove. But those are the kind of things we had to, to deal with. And the predictions of economic doom and gloom that it was going to cause Wilson that were just based on pure fantasy. If I could jump in for a second, I mean, there's a deep history of that. I've gone back more than 100 years to the electricity fights, and it was the same argument. The argument was, if you let cities build their own electric systems, it is the end of the free enterprise system in America. And frankly, that was a time when there really were communists and anarchists, and they were different people who were fighting each other. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> And somehow, somehow we got electricity to everyone without losing the free market enterprise system, which I think is good. And uh, But it gives well, you a sense of you- a socialist country. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is not something that I mean, you know, this is where you start to get into different debates. I, I am very firm and have been that I am not a socialist. And I think socialism is frankly a set of policies that um, that generally don't work well. And I hate arguments about it because everyone defines socialism and capitalism differently. That's but true. I try to be very clear. I think the market is one of the most amazing things humans have ever built right up there with the Internet. And, and we need to make sure that we, we appreciate that and use it well. But I would jump in here because one of the arguments that we made in 2007 very quickly was that this was a, a free market that had failed. Exactly. Where you had the market not uh, responding to the needs of the community and their businesses by modernizing their networks, by competing with each other. This is when local governments typically have to come in. And it's really the only time they they don't want to compete with Time Warner and AT&T or CenturyLink. It's because... They have no other choice. Right. And that's why it's such a perfect analog for the electricity debates. So, Jack, the, the name of that 2007 bill was the Local Government Fair Competition Act, if I remember right. I think that's right. Yes. Uh, and I remember there were four months of um, some pretty intense lobbying. Um, and also that I believe Google got involved that year. And Vint Cerf was editing a letter that was sent saying, uh, don't do this. Local communities are doing this to help the private sector to create the infrastructure that we all need in a free market economy. And so that bill finally was changed to a study bill. Yes, that's correct. I don't remember exactly how many lobbyists the industry had involved in the legislation at the time, but it was about a dozen or so. Oh, I thought it was more like 25. That was in that was in 2011. Oh, okay. <laughs> was when they really beefed up. There, there were only about a dozen involved in the four years previous to that, because each of the major cable companies had two or three lobbyists on staff, and then the association had their lobbyists, and then they all hired uh, who were generally considered the the top independent lobbyists to come in and work for them as well. And here I was. <laughs> Representing Wilson, thank goodness Catherine was there well, to lend some sanity I, to it. I was not a lobbyist. <laughs> no, I was but not you were there to provide information, especially to me. Well, um, I became a lobbyist. 
because of it. I remember Jim Ballard saying, Catherine, I, I said, Jim, I don't know. I don't know how to be a lobbyist. And he's like, time to learn. <laughs> I found right. Jack pretty quickly. And there was some local folks too, like Jay Avatore. Um, would, he came in later. That's yeah. Right. later. Yeah. Uh, and Salisbury, they, uh, we'd always joke about, well, we knew it was going to rain uh, because, and that there was going to be a committee hearing because poor Salisbury, they come in for these hearings and they'd, they get in the car to drive the three hours back. And sure enough, the committee would announce at the last minute that they were going to have another hearing and those guys would have to change clothes, turn around and come back. And it would yeah. always be in the pouring rain. Yeah. So uh, I had the same thing with Grant Goings, my city manager, Wilson, just back and forth constantly. With no and notice. Mayor, no notice. notice. During that time. And it was interesting. The, the bills that were introduced uh, generally had bipartisan support. Both houses of the legislature were controlled by Democrats at the time. And the bills were generally introduced by the chairs of the committees that were mm -hmm. going to be considering the bills. So, you know, we had some things stacked against us, but we had some real heroes who stepped forward uh, and, and who would stand in the breach and say, this is just not the right thing to do. And I think that can't be emphasized enough uh, That's right. because I, I think people are so afraid of talking about the Democrats versus the Republicans. Um, they're even afraid of giving the name of the companies that were doing all of this. But um, there were some real leaders back then. Um, in, in 2006, when everybody drank the Kool-Aid, it was bipartisan. But there were a few Democrats that really felt burned, that uh, understood late in the game that they, they had been conned. People like uh, Representative Lubke uh, from yes. Durham. Yeah. Um, he was one of the sponsors of that legislation. He voted against his own legislation. Yeah. So in 2007, when the cable industry came back um, asking for favors, it actually was killed in his committee. He was the chair of the finance committee. And um, House Speaker Hackney also, on numerous occasions, really stood up to these guys. And they, they play mean. Point needs to be made about that. <laughs> Because it yes. hasn't been that right. way since 2011. Right. Because I think, you know, one of the things that's important about the way we've structured our government, I think, is that we've made it hard to be a hero who stands up against the money. Because fundamentally, if you make powerful enemies, you're just making it that much harder for you to get your message out, for you to get other bills through. And so if you're going to take on powerful companies, you're really going to pay a price for it. And so I think it is good to appreciate those who have done it, especially those who learn from mistakes. And I think the public needs to understand these companies have such deep pockets that they can just say it to a legislature. Well, OK, uh, you don't want to support us. We'll just run somebody against you in a primary. Mm -hmm. And that wipes out their their finances and and gives them a very long election cycle. I, I would think this might be more the case in the Republican Party right now with them being in power. But if you're a Republican who comes from a district where you want to champion internet access and you stand up and say, I'm going to make this my issue, House leadership might say, well, we're not going to support you in your in your primary. And and because they're getting so much money from AT&T and Charter behind the scenes. Um, Charter, for people who aren't familiar, bought Time Warner Cable back in the day. So um, now everything we say about Time Warner Cable is it's the same people who are doing it for charter now. 
actually they I guess Charter's reputation wasn't good enough, so they they changed the name to Spectrum. Right, Charter Spectrum. Well, Comcast did the same thing. They created a product name for all of their services to try to disassociate themselves. So yes, Charter Spectrum. That was a very kind of vicious battle in 2007. Um, I think everybody was exhausted after that. It was a new technology, Chris, and there was such an uphill battle to try to educate legislators who didn't even have computers. Um, and to Jack's credit, um, the, the, and, and, and the work of many, many communities, uh, I think we counted at the time there were about 42 communities that had plans in the works um, to do something. Um, and so, so we bought ourselves actually two years, I think in 2008, probably in no sm- uh, small part because Wilson was in negotiations with CenturyLink about that public-private partnership that That's you right. talked about. Um, there was no legislation introduced, uh, but then back we go in 2009. Obviously, that that partnership had fallen apart, and CenturyLink was going to go back at it with Time Warner and, and AT&T. So that was the year of the Level Playing Field Act. And then you had some cities like Fayetteville who, who were deciding to, to build yes, things. They were one of those 42. They had 270 miles of fiber and wanted to use it to help serve the military right. bases with better broadband. And on top of that, I recall they had a, a major street on which half of the one side of the street had service from Time Warner Cable and the other half didn't. And Time Warner Cable didn't think it was worth it crossing the street to offer service. Yeah, that came out in 2011. I remember that in the Senate mm-hmm. battle. So so in 2009, it was Ty Harrell. Do you remember, Jack? I do. Uh, a Democrat um, yes. from District 41 uh, who later resigned, I think, for campaign finance ethical issues. That's correct. Um, But the environment then was kind of extraordinary. It was 2009. Um, It was a time when our economy tanked. Yes. Um, It was the year that the federal government stepped in and identified $4.7 billion for state and local governments to build broadband infrastructure. The, The private companies could go for the money as well, but it was specifically identified for local communities or, or state legislatures, which is kind of extraordinary to remember. What, if I remember correctly, the House of Representatives and the Senate had two different approaches. Um, one of them, yes, had, was giving the money directly to the localities. The final legislation um, just made it available to anyone who wanted to apply. That's what it was. And so yeah. the ultimately, the, the roughly $7 billion was given out by NTIA and the BTOP program, or which was Broadband Technologies Opportunities Program, I think. And then the uh, some balance of the money was given to USDA through the Rural Utility Service, through the Broadband Improvement or Broadband Initiatives Program, BIP. BIP, um, yeah. That's how those were distributed. <laughs> yeah. So you have all this federal money that it's kind of like after the Depression um, in the 1930s, where the government is is wanting to invest money in infrastructure and create jobs. I think at the time there were 600,000 uh, unemployed. It seems like a drop in the bucket these days. But uh, back then, <laughs> that was big news. Big and you had a Democrat who was initiating legislation for Time Warner Cable and AT&T and CenturyLink to stop communities from being having the authority to build those networks in an economic environment that was quite troubled. That didn't go over very well at all. <laughs> it did with uh, people like um, Tom Tillis and Representative Avila who uh, were sponsoring that legislation. Going back, that's the first time that I saw their names uh, crop up as sponsors. 
And, you know, Jack, you can talk about this time too, but that bill was flipped to a study bill quite quickly. Right. Well, tell us his involvement in this goes back to his local government roots uh, down near Charlotte when he apparently didn't like a lot of the things that local government were doing and came to the General Assembly uh, with pretty clear intentions of cutting back on the authority local government had. So he took that position when, when, when he was in the legislature. And then when he became speaker in 2011, uh, it was just wide open warfare against local government for an entire decade now. Which is one of the reasons it also made it harder on um, organizations like the North Carolina League of Municipalities. When they're getting attacked on 100 different fronts, it's very hard for them to focus on one like broadband. Oh, yeah. Their, their revenue sources were being taken away. Uh, their authority to regulate business development, environmental issues were all under attack. Uh, when, we, when we get to 2011, we've, we've weathered the storm with the Democrats being in control by having heroes like Hackney and Lukey stand up and say, not in my house. You're not going to do that here. And converting them into study bills. Oh. We probably should talk about 2010, the, uh, the kidney awareness bill. Yes. Why don't you do that one? That's, that's... <laughs> is this, does this have to do with bathtubs full of ice and strangers you've met in a bar? <laughs> Not so quite, it, but close. So, so once again, uh, because of uh, strong leadership, um, particularly in the, in the House uh, and, and in the Finance uh, Committee and with Representative Faison from Caswell, uh, representing Caswell in Orange County, um, that cable industry bill was uh, in 2019. Um, 2009. 2009. 2009. I'm sorry. The the Level Playing Field Act was was again flipped to a study bill. 2010 arrives, and uh, Representative Faison is controlling a lot of the conversation through his House uh, committee, and we're having good hearings. Um, in particular, I remember one slide, Jack, where where the committee stood up and said, "Well, here are the." the communities that, that want to provide their own broadband. And there were five tiny dots on the entire state of North Carolina with the rest of the area being served by these multi-billion dollar companies. And this is why we were meeting endlessly week after yeah. week to talk about <laughs> what a threat this was. Yes. The cable industry. So uh, the house, there wasn't anything that really, uh, there was a lot of good hearings. A lot of good discussion. Um, but in the Senate, uh, Senator Hoyle <laughs> did introduce the No Competing uh, System Act. Um, and as Jack has mentioned, I think Chris, you mentioned it too, Senator Hoyle um, was proud to call himself the businessman's businessman. Um, he, he is quoted publicly as saying he has carried more water for the cable industry than Gunga did. Jack and I would see cable industry lobbyists answering the telephone in yeah. Hoyle's office. Yeah. <laughs> so Representative Hoyle was, was not at all ashamed about uh, doing their heavy lifting for them. Um, and although he got that bill out of his committee um, and, th and through the Senate, um, it was flipped to a, a study bill. The problem with that study bill was that it had moratorium language in it. And in essence, it was a prohibition because it was saying the local government commission would not be able to approve any local communities financing for these systems 
until 2011 when more legislation could be introduced. Um, that bill went over to Faison's committee and died. But again, to the credit of our Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate, um, at something like one o'clock in the morning on the last day of the legislature, uh, this, this bill that had made it through a uh, crossover, it was a kidney awareness bill. Um, That's right. Senator Claude Felter for the cable industry gutted that bill and dumped in it the moratorium language uh, from Hoyle's legislation. And it went back and forth and back and forth. And finally at 3 a.m., uh, with the help of Representative Lubke and, um, and Representative Hackney, the bill died. So no legislation in 2010. Then we go into 2011. In 2010, it's, it's worth noting, not only do um, Republicans have historic gains around the country and in North Carolina, in North Carolina in particular, it's a, it's a, I think of it as a new breed of Republican, um, one that is much more focused on what I think of now as sort of the I don't. I hate to call them pro business because they're not pro business. They're pro monopoly. Right. Um, they're pro multinational. Yes. Right. Their their policies, I think, often harm local businesses and they cloak them in a pro-business language that people tend to like. Um, but it is a it's a new kind of Republican Party in North Carolina in 2011. But just a word about 2010 before before we go away. Yeah, um, because the election was in November of 2010. The mm-hmm. election was was in November of 2010. The so-called short session was during the summer of 2010. And, and in North Carolina, we have a a two-year legislative cycle. In the odd-numbered year, like 09, it's a long session. It lasts six, seven, sometimes eight months, and the legislature takes up 2,000 bills, passes a budget, and then adjourns until the following summer. They'll usually come in in like May of 2010, and they're in for five or six weeks, and the idea is to make adjustments to the budget take up any issues that were left over from the 29 session. And that's how they were able to take the kidney awareness bill that had passed uh, one house in 09 and was still eligible to be considered in the short summer session in 2010. By now, the cable industry is really starting to gear up its lobbyists. And as Catherine pointed out, you, you know, they go to certain offices and literally take them over. They answer the phones, they screen people that can see the legislator. I remember having to get a meeting with Hall at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, that was the only time we could get. Thank goodness his, his wonderful legislative assistant, Penny Williams was there instead of one of the cable lobbyists and was able to work us into the Senator's schedule at, at seven in the morning. We had our meeting with Hall, but he made it pretty clear where he was and what he was doing and, and that he was not going to be in a position to help us. And Hall was a powerful legislator. He was co-chair of the Senate Finance Committee. Yeah. And all major budget legislation has to go through the Finance Committee. So if you're on the side of the finance chair, you've got a leg up on everybody. We generally didn't have those kinds of folks, you know, supporting us. Um, but we did have people like the speaker and Representative Lukey uh, and others like that uh, who would step in and, and speak up for us and, and do what had to be done sometimes, you know, in the 
late night hours or early morning hours. Uh, as you get near the end of the session, they usually try to finish up in a week so that they don't have to recess for a weekend and come back. So they start having these incredibly long sessions. Start at 10 in the morning and last through midnight, early into the next morning. And that's exactly what happened as they were trying to wrap up this day and made that one last effort to get that bill through in, in 2010 was well after midnight, uh, mm-hmm. right at the end, uh, using whatever tools they could get to try to keep their issue alive and uh, held them off. Hopefully, Chris, you'll ask us, you know, what messages we would leave people with and, and what lessons we learned. But clearly one of them is that individuals matter. A single person can matter. Um, and yeah. also who you elect really matters uh, because leadership matters. It really does. Uh, um, so there we are, uh, November 2010, um, an election is held and a hundred year reversal of control of the House and Senate and governorship happens. Not the governorship, right? Um, um, Governor Purdue oh, that's right. um, was a, remained a Democrat. Right. That's right. So it was a historical reversal of control of the House and Senate um, with uh, Representative Hackney out in the House and uh, Representative Tom Tillis in. Right. And and we'll explain why that matters so much in the next episode. This is um, this has been a really good um, a history of leading up to uh, this historic decision that basically shut down the community networks in North Carolina, really basically made partnerships much more difficult um, and have generally harmed North Carolina. There was one thing I wanted to throw in, which is that um, we I meant to mention this earlier, but in the time in which these bills are, are being debated, and, and this is true in 2011 too, North Carolina rural broadband is not very good. It's um, the state is is ranked rather poorly. Um, I think is in 2011, which um, reflects the same thing in 20, 2009, 2010. Time Warner Cable was a real laggard, and so their yeah. speeds were slow enough that because so much of North Carolina only had Time Warner Cable, seven of the worst ten cities in America to get broadband in were in North Carolina, according to uh, some research at the time. And also, Chris, because of the deregulation, Time Warner was selling off all its rural systems. It wasn't serving the rural areas anymore as all these as all this legislation is rolling out. And we kept telling the legislators that this is going to hurt your rural communities more than any other communities. The urban areas will get will get served. And in fact, they they had some token uh, competition from AT&T. But we we kept telling them, don't do this. It's really going to hurt the rural areas. So that's where we'll come back. And um, thank you so much for this um, this uh, part one, uh, Jack and Catherine. This has been uh, really useful to get this all on the record. It's a pleasure. Absolutely, Chris. That was Christopher talking with Catherine Rice and Jack Cozort. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at medianetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at medianetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow medianetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at medianetworks. Subscribe to this and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support, in any amount, keeps us going. Thank you to Arna Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 412 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast, presented by NC Broadband Matters. Thanks for listening.